Thank you, Ben. Friends, this morning we conclude our sermon series on counterfeit gods, our series that we have been doing together, this journey that we have shared together during Lent this year. The invitation this Lent has been to, rep- to reflect upon our lives and to see how we have moved away from the walk that God desires us to live into, to reflect and to repent if necessary as we ask the question, are counterfeit gods creeping into our lives? Are counterfeit gods creeping in to our lives, both individually and as a community of faith also? I remind us where we have been the past few years, and, and for those of you who like to read along in, in Scripture with your Bibles that you bring, you could go ahead and turn to Genesis 50, but it's going to be some time before we actually read Scripture. I'd like to remind us of where we have been as we have done this journey with the counterfeit gods and the whole topic of idolatry. Presbyterian founder John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Author, theologian, Pastor Tim Keller, who wrote Counterfeit Gods, a book that we have been using on Wednesday night, he says that it is the making of good things into ultimate things. What are the idols that we have turned to to give us meaning beyond what they were ever intended to give to us? And what are the good things, good things like family and marriage and friendship and beauty and security and work and money? What are the good things that we start valuing too much? We've looked together at the idols of love and money success. Today, we will look at the idol of power. Earlier this week, I sent along a question to actually a pretty large group of people. And here is the question, although I don't have a lot of kid input. I'm sitting here looking in faces, thinking if you have an answer, shout it out to me, will you? Here's the question. What gives you a feeling of power? Any of the kids, what gives you a feeling of power? Holler it if you've got something later, anytime. So here's a sampling of the answers I received. What gives you a feeling of power? Believing you can control the outcome. Having easy access to the boss. Being invited to certain meetings. When a board meeting is running smoothly. Feeling powerful as I drive to a particularly important meeting. When I know my stuff and that what I am doing is the right thing. Knowledge, love, receiving love from others, driving a nice car, being able to pass very slow cars in traffic. Maybe that goes together. Maybe if you have a nice car, that's what happens. Uh, Doing something really well, physical accomplishment, like making it to the top of a summit, and no, that one did not come from Paul Parsons. Feeling powerful during a strong workout in the gym. When I'm fully operating in the ways that God made me to be. When kids in the classroom are paying attention and engaged. When my own kids behave, listen, and obey. Saying no to something I knew was bad for me. The power of making a good choice. The rare days when I feel like I have it all together and life is smooth. Winning at anything and having complete control of the television remote. (laughs) Quite a few people responded that they actually feel powerless 
way more often than they feel powerful. Let's continue to reflect upon power for a few moments. Consider the narratives in our culture for what power is. We live in a nation that values power and might. News media outlets offer plenty of lists for the best and most powerful people in our world on the planet. For example, Forbes magazine presents their list of the top 100 celebrities or the 400 richest persons or the most powerful women. Since 2014, Time Magazine has each year recognized 100 people as the most influential in our world. There's a, another list that highlights the 50 most powerful people in Washington, D.C. These lists go on and on and on. Power can harm. We could spend the rest of this day together talking together, recounting historically together the ways that power has been abused nationally and in corner offices, between races, within families, and yes, within Christ Church. There is debris everywhere when it comes to power being used incorrectly. Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Power is the possession of control, authority, or influence over others. But is this necessarily a bad thing? Does this have to be a bad thing? No. God puts people in positions of power and influence to impact God's world. For example, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah was in a position to be God's instrument and to be able to approach the king about rebuilding Israel because, or rebuilding Jerusalem because he was a, in a trusted position as a cupbearer. So he was in a great position of influence. God used that for the people of God. Likewise, Deborah, a judge, she was an expert in settling disputes. She was a motivational speaker like in ancient E.F. Hutton when Deborah spoke, people listened. God used her to help get Israel unstuck and to once again to be God's faithful people. In the New Testament, God uses, Jesus uses two word pictures, salt and light, to describe our need to influence the world. Be salt and light. As salt exists for food, disciples exist for the world. To be salt means that we move into the world. We move into the brokenness of the world. We are not to hate the world or be afraid of the world or withdraw from the world. Rather, we move into the world. We give of ourselves, we risk, and we go. We are to be people of influence. When power is used to bring glory to God or to dignify human beings and enhance their quality of life, it is a very good thing. However, when it becomes the ultimate thing, then power can become harmful. This is when it becomes a counterfeit God. Tim Keller says that this idol is so deep in our lives that it is often quite challenging to even recognize or discern. In fact, that question I sent out 
uh, about what gives you the feeling of power, almost half of the group I sent it out to said, this particular idol, the idol of power, is the most difficult idol for, for us to even wrap our minds and hearts around. I actually personally have had a harder time connecting to this idol as well, but author Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says that this idol is a deep idol and it is actually really the idol that is underneath most every other idol that we wrestle with, the idol of power. As with all other idols, the line between power being a good thing and a destructive thing, it is hard to discern. The line is, is blurred. But Keller says that one way to discern the line has been crossed is when your greatest nightmare is humiliation or embarrassment. If your greatest nightmare is humiliation or embarrassment, then you may be valuing power too much. The idol of power is when you need to have power to find your worth. It's when the following is true. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Let me say that again as you are sitting here trying to think if this is an idol for you. That life only has meaning. You only have worth if you have power or influence over others. With power so celebrated and also seductive, and with the world's definition of power so very different than Jesus' definition of power, what are we then to do? Is there any way that we can hold power in our hands in a way that is indeed good for the world? We are gonna close Counterfeit Gods in the same book where we began this journey, which is in the book of Genesis. Our scripture today brings to a close the story of Joseph. This scripture has so many important themes in it, including the providence of God and perspective and forgiveness, but this is also the story about the use of power. So we'll hold this story as an example of how power can be used. Watch for that as we read the scripture together. Let me set this up. The death of Jacob, Joseph's father, sets the stage for today's passage. Joseph was, he was laid to rest with all the pomp and circumstance that Egypt could muster befitting the, the king of a nation. All of the servants of Pharaoh, all of the armies of Egypt in an armed escort of chariots and, and horsemen make the procession for Jacob's funeral. From Egypt, they travel back to the promised land because for all of the good of Egypt, for all that Egypt had to offer, it is not Israel's home. Let us now turn to the ending of Genesis in the conclusion of a story of the one who went from favored son to slavery to imprisonment to the second in command in Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's house. Genesis 50, beginning with verse 15. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? 
So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is God's word for us. Thanks be to God. The past is not easily forgotten. Betrayal and hurt in a family are not easily overcome. Some of you here today know that to be true all too well. Jacob has died, and because of this, Joseph's brothers face a new reality and are afraid that powerful Joseph will now get revenge, get revenge for selling their brothers into slavery. Life among siblings has to be renegotiated after the death of a parent. Typical patterns of behavior may no longer continue. Facing a new circumstance, the brothers are anxious and they make a plea for forgiveness. They say it was their father's deathbed wish that the brothers would be reconciled. They ask for forgiveness for their crime committed against their brother, which causes Joseph once again, he did this back earlier in chapter 45, he, it causes him again to weep because he realizes that his brothers are afraid of him. And that reconciliation is still a, a work in progress. An amazing thing about Joseph is his clarity and ability to sort out those things that belong to God, things like forgiveness and leading, leaving the writings of wrongs to God the Father. Joseph gives the brothers a fresh understanding of what happened. Now nearing the end of his life, for those of you who know this story, remember this whole thing began because he was one who dreamed of power. He dreamed of power and people bowing down before him, including his, his family, but life has humbled Joseph. And now here at the end of his life, he's able to see God's hand behind the events of his life. He sees clearly that God has been at work, even through human failures. Verse 20 is a summary of the entire Joseph narrative. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. The life of Joseph, the vocation of Joseph by the plan of God is to give life to that family. God's plans for good and life will triumph for this family is destined for life. And Joseph's brothers, Pharaoh, Potiphar's wife, none of them will be able to thwart God's plan. 
it's important to see that this scripture still names that what the brothers did was wrong. In the end, Joseph doesn't say what has happened is now all of a sudden okay. It is not suddenly good. In verse 20, Joseph names it for what it was. It was evil. Their hatred, their jealousy, their lack of love, their smallness, their evil intentions to harm him. It was all terribly wrong. It hurt and it was painful and there were consequences for all involved. However, sin and consequences for sin and conflict, they will not have the final word. They will not have the final word in that family and they will not have the final word for us. What are the three things that Joseph names to help his brothers to not be afraid? He names three things. One, he says, God's intentions are different than human intentions. Two, he says that he's going to use his power and his influence to care for them. He's going to use the influence he has in a positive way to care for his family. And first and foremost, Joseph understands that Joseph is not God. He is a man in a position of great power and authority, yes, but he rightly understands that he is under God's authority just as his brothers are under the authority of the sovereign God. Friends, putting ourselves in the place of God is at the heart of most all of our problems. Putting ourselves in the place of God is at the heart of most all of our problems. This reaches back to the beginning of Genesis where we started the sermon series and the garden when Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were given so much permission, the permission to do so many things and to enjoy the garden. They were asked to just do, not do one thing. One thing was prohibited. Yet they did not like the limitations and they ate of the fruit of that one tree claiming that they know better than God. Joseph will not put himself in God's chair. Will we do the same? God wants the world to flourish. Flourishing goes well beyond the idea that we merely exist or merely survive. Flourishing is living life to the fullest. It's the picture of thriving and growing. Flourishing involves the desire for others to live rich, full lives. It's the desire for others to blossom and to be healthy within our families, within Christ's church, within our places of work, within schools, within our communities. There is so much influence in this room. Think about all the places where you spend your time during the week. We ought to be using human flourishing as a measure for success. How are we enhancing? As you go through your week in your mind's eye and the places and the people you spend time with, are you enhancing their lives? We give of ourselves because of a concern that our neighbors flourish. 
One of my most favorite statements from the early church fathers comes from a second century bishop named Irenaeus. He's the Bishop of Lyons in France. And here's what he says. He says, it is the glory of God that man is fully alive. It is the glory of God that humanity, men and women, that they are fully alive. Friends, this is how we use our power and our influence. We use it not to control, but we use it to bless. We are blessed to be a blessing. So position, power is not in the positions that we hold or in the ability to retaliate. That is the misuse of power. Real power does not come from a position. We find real power in Christ. We then give it away to bless the world. Holding power over others does not help another human being to flourish. Instead, we give power away to help them be more fully alive. The antidote, humility. There have been so many beautiful examples of humility in our world. Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi come to mind. Pope Francis has captured the imagination of millions who gave up hope for the church, primarily because of his practice of humility. The greatest example of humility in history, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us the way. The world strategy is that you make it to the top, regardless of what you have to do to get there. To succeed, you have to fight your way to the top, throw power around, and never stop climbing. Jesus, our Savior, he shows us a different kind of power. It's not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but rather, instead, it is the path of downward mobility where power is constantly abandoned in favor of love. God flipped the power ladder upside down. Up is now down and down is now up. It's a call to live a life of humility and servanthood after the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way we who profess to be Christian hold power is to hold it lightly, to hold it humbly, and to use it to serve others. That's the whole reason God has given us any power and influence that we have. It's not to hold it over others or for ourselves or even just for our tight little family and, and closest friends. It is a, to give it away to God's larger world. It is to be used in service to God's world. Ultimately, friends, this is all about having both yourself and God right-sized and in their proper place along with all the good things in your life. The invitation this whole Counterfeit Gods series has been to turn to the cross and to find forgiveness, to repent and to turn to the one who deserves first place in our lives. We are a part of a family that is destined for life because of Jesus Christ. How might we help others in this city to flourish and to be more fully alive?
Would you join me in prayer? God, we acknowledge that you alone are worthy to receive all praise and honor, glory and power and blessing. You alone are to receive our worship. You alone are to take the place of the throne of our lives. Yet God, we acknowledge this morning that we are so prone to put ourselves at the very center of our lives and to worship ourselves and to think that we are the answer to the world and our answer to problems. Lord, have mercy on us. So God, this morning we repent of the ways that we use power in a way that is harmful for others. And God, we acknowledge and recognize that often we use power in ways that are harmful with the people closest to us. God, we ask for your forgiveness and we repent of that. And Lord, we repent of the times when we seek to control rather than to serve, when we tear down instead of building up. So we pray this day that you will unleash your transforming power in our lives and in this community and turn our hearts toward you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for valuing us. Continue to make us into the people you long for us to be. For the flourishing of your world, we pray together in Christ's name. Amen.